Well, we're into week three of our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series, and we're exploring discipleship that connects our spiritual self and our emotional self. And it's understanding ourselves that we can understand God and His work in and through us. And today, we're going to go back and look at the messy backstory of Joseph. And my prayer is that you'll be able to be open to considering how you can rewrite your story, that, that God gets the glory today for, 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 for the generations to come as well. <clears throat> if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be flipping through a whole lot uh, through Scripture today. So we're going to go on a journey through Genesis. So it might be a good starting place to, to open your Bibles into Genesis 12. If you're at home, just quickly go grab a Bible, open it to Genesis 12, and I'm going to pray. And by the time you get back, you'll have that, that there as well. Let's pray. Now, God, as we open Scripture today, may we... Uh, come to an understanding of your word. May we come to an understanding of who you are, that we might not live in the past. May our past not define who we are, but rather may you define who we are. So God, help us to know and understand your word that it may speak life into us. Thanks, Lord. Amen. Well, we know families are messy, aren't they? We just uh, have to ask the, uh, the, the British monarchy uh, about that. Um, if you go back to Henry VIII, he uh, had a pretty messy sort of family system sort of going. The plight of his six wives weren't grace. It went divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, the last one survived. And it's all because none of the wives could have a baby boy. That's what it says anyway. That's what they, th- uh, they think. But imagine that being part of your family tree. As the time's gone on in that royal family, scandals follow them wherever they are. All sorts of affairs, family splits, splits, messy relationships. It seems to follow them around. Maybe it's just because we see it so much because it's front and centre in the news. I feel sorry for that royal family. But families are messy. Maybe your family is messy as well. Maybe it's a hidden messiness. Maybe there's stuff in the past that comes back and haunts you still now. You know, Joseph in the Bible, he had a pretty messy family tree. We pick up the story of Joseph in chapter 37, but his family tree is worth exploring before that. So if you've got your Bibles, go back to Genesis 12 verse 1, when God calls Abram to be the one who God's people would be blessed through. It says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God makes Abram a promise. And this is a major part of Scripture. So if you don't know this part of Scripture, I encourage you to read this through. And this part, it tells us that that God's going to bless you and all the people on earth will be blessed. Everyone else from now on. So Abraham, he does what God says. He leaves everything behind. And he faithfully follows the promises of God. Just flick down to verse 10. There's this famine in the land. And Abraham, he goes to live in Egypt. But Abraham was scared that when the Egyptian found his wife, Sarai, the Egyptians will kill him and take his wife because his wife was so beautiful. He thought his wife was pretty good looking. So he says, hey, just tell them that you're my sister and they won't kill me. 
And sure enough, the Egyptians find Sarai beautiful, and the Pharaoh says, well, you'll be mine. And, and they treat Abraham well, and they give him all the cattle and all this sort of stuff, and, and it goes on. So, so here's Abram saying his wife is actually his sister. And the story goes on. Come down to verse 17. But, there's always a but, but the Lord... Yahweh inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai, because he told them something wrong. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Fair call. Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Well, at least he gave her back. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and sent him on his way with his wife, and everything that he had. Remember, he got blessed by Pharaoh, all the things that he got. So we've got Abram telling his wife to lie for him, to save his own neck. That's a great husband, really, isn't it? Good on you, Abram. All right, flip over to chapter 20, and let's read the start of, of this chapter and see whether we've heard this before. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 20. Now, Abraham, now was Abram, but now Abraham, moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. Remember these words, these places. And there Abram said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Heard that before. Then Abimelech, remember that name, king of Gerar, remember that place, sent for Sarah and took her. He's done the same thing. Abram succumbed to the same sin again, lying. The problem is, it doesn't stop at Abram. Turn to chapter 26. Flip over. Now we've got Isaac. Now this is the son of Abraham and Sarah. So time's gone on and he's now got this next part, Genesis 26. So let's read the start and see if we can find any similarities here. Now, there was a famine in the land. have heard that before. Besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, which we've just read... And Isaac went to Abimelech, remember that name, Abimelech, same king, king of the Philistines in Gerar. We've heard that before. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. Well, that's great. Fantastic. The 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 covenant that God set with Abraham sounds like it's going to live on. Fantastic. Verse 4. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him keeping my commands, my decrees and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar, that place. So we start to hear that same story, don't we? We've got Isaac going to King Abimelech, the same king that Abraham went to because of the famine. So similar sort of situation. God's told him to stay there and all will be well. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. They'll be blessed. It's the same language. We've heard the same language passed down from Abraham. So it's exciting. We hear that God is in control. God's plan is to be fulfilled in this faith-filled family. Then we get down to verse 7. Let's see what happens. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, uh uh-oh, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. Fear has flowed through the family. 
He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she's so beautiful. They loved their wives, but just didn't honor them. Can you, can you, can you consider that? <laughs> like father, like son. Exact same king, exact same place. It doesn't stop there. Flip over chapter 27 now of Genesis. Isaac, he's got these two twin sons, Esau and Jacob. They don't get along from the very beginning. If you know how the story goes, Jacob wants his brother's birthright. Esau was born first, only just, but it was rightfully Esau's to have. However, Jacob tricks Isaac into giving him the birthright by lying to him and saying he was Esau. He dressed his arms in hair, because Esau was the hairy one, dressed his arms in hair so that when Isaac touched him, he thought it was Esau. Now, Isaac was old, so his eyesight wasn't great. So, so Jacob, whose, whose name in Hebrew actually means supplanter or to replace, he lied to get his brother's boots and take the birthright that was due to Esau. This lying and deception is getting worse from generation to generation. Flip forward, chapter 37, we come to Jacob and his family. And if you grew up in church or if you've watched Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, you know the story. Jacob had Joseph in his old age and he favoured him. So much so that he made a special coat. And his brothers hated Joseph and Joseph didn't do himself any favours when he told them his dreams in which his brothers would actually bow down to him. It incensed his brothers so much that one day they plotted to kill Joseph, which is pretty drastic. The family line hasn't got the best role models, but this is still pretty drastic. Joseph was just lucky that we had a Reuben, and Reuben was around, and Reuben had a bit of compassion for his brother and said, let's not kill him, let's spare his life. Rather than killing him, they did the next worst thing, which is they sold him to the Egyptians in the hope that they'll never, ever see him again. They took his coat, they got some animal's blood, they took it back to Jacob and told him that the animals have killed Joseph and the blood on the coat was evidence. Can you see the problems that are going from generation to generation? There's a pattern emerging from generation to generation. There was inherent lying from generation to generation. Favoritism caused problems from generation to generation. You go back, read all through Genesis, and you can start to see how sin lives on from one generation to the next. This generational sin thing is very real. Our family of origin going back, has a huge bearing on who we are today. I want you to flip forward now to Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, we know this well. It's the Ten Commandments. So we're going to read from verse 1. Let's stick with me here. We're going a lot through Scripture. Let's stick with me. So verse 1 of, uh, of Exodus 20. And God spoke these words. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So that's the first one. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's a lady at a church that I was at, and uh, she continued to quote this uh, through her prayers, through whatever, she, whatever she's saying. She, she'd quote it just about all the time. And as a younger Christian, it sort of freaked me out a little bit. Will my grandfather's stuff-ups heap judgment on me? 
Because that's what it sounds like a little bit. Will my grandfather's misguided youth mean that I'm bound for punishment or a harsher judgment? I, I really struggled with this because this uh, was not the God that, that I came to know as a teenager, as, a, as a, a, an older teenager. This was a God of unjust punishment and I didn't come to know that God. I knew a God of justice, of grace, of mercy. So it's hard to, to sort of get my head around that verse. Do we just say that Jesus' blood has covered all, over all this and forget these verses altogether? Do we sort of just glaze over the first part of the, the sort of um, punishment sort of thing and then focus on that love part because that's easier to focus on? I think like with all scripture, we need to really wrestle with it. So when we read, the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of parents of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, we've got to consider what, what's going on in the heart of God here. Is it that God will inflict punishment on my son Jasper's kids because of something that I've done? If you flip over to Ezekiel 18 verse 20, it says this, The one who sins is the one who will die. See, the punishment for sin is death. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share guilt, the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. So, so from this, we can suggest that God is not a God who exacts vengeance upon those who are righteous, regardless of their past. So going back to Exodus 20, we can suggest that the key words there are those who hate me. You see, it seems to be the ongoing sin of generation after generation, generations that don't follow in the way of God, generations that follow in the way of their, their forefathers. Uh, commentator Adam Clark, he says this, This necessarily implies if the children walk in the steps of their father, if the children are walking the way their dads were walking, for no man can be condemned by divine justice for a crime of which he was never guilty. That sounds more like the heart of God. There's a suggestion here that, like we've seen in Abraham's lineage, that the sins of the past sort of come down the line. The sons walked in the ways of their fathers and their fathers before them. But notice, Exodus talks of three or four generations of their sinful ways. But can you remember how many generations of those who are righteous? It says a thousand generations of those who are righteous. What we can suggest here is that the choices that you make today have a drastic impact on the generations below. Not the judgments, but the choices. Just as the generations above you have made an impact on your life for good and sometimes for not so good. You might remember this. Uh, I remember this for sure. The first time I heard those, those fateful words, and you never like it, but I said, you sound just like your dad. <laughs> and yes, the words that my dad used will start to creep into my vocabulary too. But not just the words, mannerisms and traits, some which I value, some which I could leave behind. Now, you've got you to hear this well. I have a wonderful, loving mother and father. I've been very blessed. They always gave me the opportunities to be the best person I could be. I was never in doubt that they loved me. Yet there are times where I see dad's traits filtering in through me. H how I deal with cooking is one of them. 
like cooking food. I grew up watching Dad take control of the kitchen. He loved being in there and he'd cook us up a storm. He'd cook us these wonderful meals. However, he would not let anyone into the kitchen. It was his space. It was like a creative outlet for him. I also love being in the kitchen. I love making food for my family and serving them. However, I've been finding that I end up wrestling with Jasper, who just loves the kitchen as much as I do. He wants to cook and he wants to bake. And instead of embracing Jasper um, and saying, hey, Jas, come and, come and cook with me, I'll say to him, you know what? I, I've got to do this cooking now. I've got to get dinner ready. Maybe you can do that a bit later. And I send him away. As you look into your past, you may see traits of your family coming through. And sometimes they're great, but sometimes they can be really, really painful. You might already be feeling the pain of a divorce from generation to generation. There might be abuse from the past that's still bringing pain for today. Emotional pain that has seen a grandmother, mother and daughter fall into the same habits, trying to fix or trying to please and it just hurts their families it can be painful and you think Pete I don't want to do that I don't want to go back to my past I left it there I've moved on I don't want to revisit this Scazzero in his book uh, and that we're going through he suggests that behavioral patterns operate under a set of commandments some are spoken and illicit but many are unspoken They're hardwired into our brains and into our DNA, so much so that apart from the intervention of God himself and through biblical discipleship, we uh, we simply bring these expectations into our relationships as adults. Here's a couple that you might relate to. And if you've got the book or if you can get the book, the book gives you a few, few more of these sort of things. And I wonder if any of these flick a switch for you that may have been hardwired into your DNA. Maybe the way that your family looked at money. They might have said, make lots of money to prove that you've made it in life. Maybe it's how your family dealt with conflict. And they've taught you to avoid conflict at all costs because conflict is bad. It can be hurtful to your family to think that way. Maybe it's the way that sex was talked about. Maybe sex was not something you should talk about openly in your family. Maybe you're not allowed to be depressed because there was something in the past or it's seen as a sign of weakness. Maybe you've grown up thinking you've watched your grandfather and your father not show any vulnerability in relationship because to show vulnerability shows weakness. Perhaps all you've seen about this word success is that it's making a lot of money. So you strive and you strive and you strive and you strive to make lots of money so that you will be successful. Perhaps you suppress your feelings because all you've known is that feelings are actually not that important. Schizero identifies so many more traits that we may carry in ourselves today because of what we've learnt from our past. It makes you consider the reasons behind how you respond to situations you're finding yourself in right now. It helps you realize why anger starts to creep in when something from your past is triggered. One common pattern that is found found within 
many people is that you must achieve to be loved. I wonder if you can relate to that. Perhaps there was a sense that to receive love in life, there needs to be great grades or you've got to achieve the best in sports. You've got to have a great husband or a great wife. You've got to have the perfect family. And you felt that to find love, you've had to achieve. And maybe you've even filtered that down to your own kids. You know, I've had many times of pride watching my boys play basketball. I've played basketball pretty much all my life and love watching my boys play basketball. And I was able to play with Tarkin in the last couple of weeks as well. That's one of my goals of life was to play basketball with my sons. And I can't wait to play with Jasper as well. But there's been a few times where I have to admit, I longed for them to go that extra step. To get into the right position on the court. To take the right shot. To make the best pass. And I think, I've got to watch myself because I don't want them to think that they need to achieve to make me proud of them. Because watching them run on the court makes me proud every week. See, God's desire for us is to know that we are loved without any conditions, without having to achieve it. See, our humanness seeks love by doing something. Yet God's love is unconditional. We can't do enough to find God's love because God's love is totally unconditional. However, just as the Israelites, they left Egypt, but a lot of that Egyptian culture remained in them, subconsciously we carry behaviours that have come from our family of origin with us. Some that just aren't healthy for being healthy disciples. Well, it all sounds like a bit of a downer, but in Christ there's always hope. Philosopher George Santayana, Santana, Santana, not the guitarist, but George Santana, he said this, Those who cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Those who do not or cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. So what do we do? Rather than repeat the behaviours embedded in us, how do we break through this cycle? Well, I want to suggest that we can learn from Joseph and Joseph's journey. Because Joseph modelled what it looked like to go backwards in order to go forwards. So we come to Joseph's story and he was sold into slavery and he ends up in the house of Potiphar. He thrived as a servant in this house until Mrs. Potiphar put the moves on him and Joseph, he upheld his integrity and he ran away. He was put in jail because Mrs. Potiphar was embarrassed that someone would actually say no to her and eventually he is released because he's able to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. And eventually he found favour in Pharaoh's eyes, so much so that he became the second most powerful person in the land. What a, what a roller coaster. Makes for a good story for his grandchildren. <laughs> God's hand was over Joseph through his whole time, his whole life. And Joseph, even though it was such a roller coaster, remained faithful. Even when he had reason to be bitter and to be angry, to lie, to have fear. Even though his past could have dictated his future, he chose to walk in the ways of God. Even to the end, Joseph continued to walk with God and became a blessing to his family and releasing them into freedom in Egypt and eventually freeing them to live out the promises that God gave to Abraham all those generations before. So I just want to bring up three lessons we can learn from the life of Joseph and how we can help to see a bigger picture and, and break away from those uh, family commandments that sort of are written or unwritten that we can know God and help our generations below. First thing we can do is 
that we find that Joseph had a profound sense of the greatness of God in spite of his past. Through all these moments of pain, through the dark times of being sold by his brothers, being put in jail for upholding his own integrity, Joseph never lost sight of God. Genesis 45 verse 8 says this, So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's a pretty big thing to say. It's not you who sent me here. It's not you who made me come to Egypt. Even though you sold me into slavery, it was God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. You see, if he hadn't done that, if God hadn't allowed this all to happen, I wouldn't be here. This wouldn't be happening. Joseph held steadfast to the reality that God's greater plan reigns in spite of the human mistakes of the past. Regardless of his past, regardless of what had happened to him, regardless of the brother's vengeance, regardless of the lies, the deceit, regardless of Abraham's very beginning mistakes of allowing his, sister, his wife to be his sister, Joseph rested in the goodness of God. You know, when our eyes are set on the greatness of God, we may not be able to make sense of what is right now, but we can rest in God's love Right now. It's summed up in Genesis 50 verse 20. Joseph's talking to his brothers. They were fearful that he was going to hurt them. He says this. You intended or you planned to harm me. But God intended. God planned for it. God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. He saw the greatness of God. He saw God's greater plan and lived into it despite the pain. The second thing we we learn from Joseph is Joseph was honest about the losses and the sadness of his family and his past. Many of us would not particularly be excited, may not want to go back to explore the pain of the past. You might feel like you're opening up this black hole and maybe feeling like it's going to swallow you up. I wonder what I would have done if I was in Joseph's shoes and met my brothers again. These brothers who sent me off to be a slave. I wonder if I'd be gracious. I wonder if I'd be angry. I wonder if I'd be excited. I wonder if I just wouldn't want to see him at all. I wouldn't blame Joseph for any of those emotions. Joseph's now got a new life. He was doing well. He could have easily have left the past behind, never to think of his family again. Wipe that era away. Start a new generation. But Genesis 45 verse 2 tells us a different story. It says, He wept. This is when he met his brothers and he's chatting to them. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard all about it. He wept. He made a big deal because he was back with his family. You know, the years were painful to Joseph. The memories were painful to Joseph. As he grieved his past, he was able to forgive This forgiveness then released him to be able to bless his family, bless the mistakes that they'd made of the past, those who had betrayed him. He was able to provide for them. He was able to lead them. He was able to save them from the famine that was. God's great plan that he revealed to Abraham, combined with Joseph's admission of his hurts of the past, allowed him to live into this new story. A story that led them to grow into being the promised people. The third thing we feel we hear of Joseph is that Joseph changed his script, his life script, 
and partnered with God in it. See, the pain of the past and the script that was written for Joseph was one that he could have easily wallowed in. He could have lived in self-pity and the lies that, that told him that he wasn't good enough. He could have been forgiven for not trusting anyone anymore or making sure that he looked out for himself regardless of the cost to others. You wouldn't blame him for doing that. This is what his life script and generational past had taught him. I wonder if you live in that mode. But rather than living in it, Joseph changed the script totally. He could have come up against his brothers with anger. He could have had them banished from the famine and out in the, in the famine. Look after yourselves. The wounds of the past could have led him to see the end, could have led him to sort of go, no, nah, this isn't going to be a part of it. But Joseph, he made a conscious choice. Joseph chose to believe that God is good. Joseph chose to believe that God is safe, that God can be trusted, even though his past told him not to trust. And Joseph chose to be a disciple in Egypt. Joseph decided to not be drawn by the past. and to, he, he said, I'm going to write a new script, and ultimately the family of God is going to flourish. You know, the process of discipleship is a journey of understanding ourselves deeper so that we may know and experience God's great love for us. The work of looking back at the past, as painful as that might be, helps us to understand God and his continued will for our lives. Now, just like Joseph, you can rewrite the story. You can be released from the past. You can forge a new story ahead for your generation now and the generations that are to come. I want to encourage you to explore some of these things. It's not a 15-minute exercise. This is a, a stop and reflection exercise. If you've been able to get one of the books, the Emotionally Healthy, Healthy Spirituality books, one of the things that this chapter looks at is a genogram. It's, it's like a family tree, but it adds into it relational function and dysfunction. And it's a way to start to explore your family and any character traits that may have followed from generation to generation. I remember doing one when I was studying at Whitley and it opened my eyes to myself in a way that I probably wasn't prepared to at that time. However, it opened a path for me to understand myself a whole lot more. And within that, it helped me start to rewrite my story and the story for my family that is to come. I'd love to chat with anyone who'd like to explore this further. And my hope is that in time we'll be able to run the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course, so in a, in a small group sort of setting, for those who want to be a part of this journey of whole life discipleship, of finding those things of our past, breaking them down and saying, I am God's, not I am my past. To close, I want to pray a prayer that I found inside, uh, that's found inside the book. Let me pray this with you. Lord, I believe you are a God with great purpose. You placed me into my particular family in a particular place in a particular time in history. I don't see what you see, but I ask you to show me, Lord, the revelation and purposes you have for me in your decision. I do not want to betray or be ungrateful for what was given to me. Yet at the same time, help me discern what I need to let go of from my past and what is essential discipleship issues that are in the present that must be addressed.
In Jesus' name, amen.